Hello and welcome to another episode of Special Parents Confidential. I'm John Pellegrini, and in this episode we're going to talk about issues of acceptance and social concerns. For parents of special needs children, dealing with social situations in school and elsewhere can be challenging. Will our children be accepted or will they be teased? Will our kids be able to handle the day-to-day -day interactions in the classroom, the cafeteria, or the playground? What about bullying? And what are we supposed to do as parents when our kids experience these problems? Well, for many schools, the person who can help guide our kids through their day is the social worker. They're also the person who parents can talk to for help in making sure their special needs children are fitting into the various social situations, and they can also offer advice that the parents can use to reinforce the school's expectations at home. Our guest on this episode of Special Parents Confidential is Chris Kenward, an elementary school social worker in the East Grand Rapids Public School District. Uh, full disclosure, he's a social worker at my kid's school, and he has many years of experience in dealing with both special needs students and general education students. And one thing to remember is although Chris works at two different elementary schools here in this district, he also works with social workers and guidance counselors in the middle schools and high schools. So he has a great perspective on school situations from the earliest ages all the way up to when they're ready for college. And as many experts agree, the vast majority of social problems begin early in elementary school. So the sooner a child with special needs can get help in dealing with social issues, the better their progress will be throughout their life. We had a lot of questions to cover, but the first thing I wanted to do was ask Chris to give an overview of what a social worker does in a typical setting at school and how they interact with the students and the faculty and the parents. Well, you know, being in, in East Grand Rapids, the role is split into two different, in two, into two different ways. Uh, half of my time is spent with the uh, general education population, and the other half is spent working within special education. Now that's kind of a unique setup. I know oftentimes in many public school systems the school social worker is working primarily with the special education population. Right. Now is that more is that more just uh, because it's an elementary school setting or do they find typically it's uh is does it that way with the rest of the schools? Most of the time, yeah. Most of the time it's the social workers are working with primarily the special education population. Now, what's happened different here is that within East Grand Rapids, I think way back when, before I even became a social worker here, there was this idea that they would have a school counselor working mainly with the general education population, and then they would have the school social worker manage the special education population. And somewhere along the line, someone someone got the good idea. You know what? Why are we having two different people take care of those roles, and we can consolidate that into one person? Because obviously, the school social worker has the same, you know has the necessary skill set to work with both populations. Right. And so, uh, it was, at least within East Grand Rapids, that was that was the tack that they took. I worked in a previous school district where they did have school counselors that worked only with general education students, and then the school social worker would come in because it is mandated by law mm -hmm. within the special education guidelines that if those services are to be provided, they're to be provided through a school social worker. Mm. So traditionally, that's the way that role has set up. What's nice about when you have that duality, obviously you've seen me operate within the school system that... I can have those relationships with all of the kids at all the time. So at any point, not only can I pull in students that are within general education, but I can pull in the, the special education students that, that I'm mandated to work with as well. And so I really have a better understanding, I think, a, a more 
holistic understanding of how the whole school operates so that if I need to step in in a particular situation, I can do it a little bit more fluidly as if, you know, as opposed to if we had two different people in those roles. Right. So that way then you can deal not only with uh, the special needs kids, but also the potential problems that might come along with general population kids with the special needs kids and the relationships. Absolutely. And I think what's nice, too, is as we know, um, we don't always know who the kids are going to be that, that, that need special education services as we move forward. And so, the, you know, oftentimes they, well, all times, they start out as general education students. And so it's just nice with managing that process and just as things develop, as needs change for different students as they get older and, and as we discover more about them and how they're interacting with their academics and, with the, and within that social milieu. You know, there's a lot more interaction of special needs kids into the mainstream classroom now than when many of us were parents and back in school. How much has really changed as far as the dynamic of acceptance with classroom peers? Well, what I like is that now so many of our services uh, are provided within the school. So not only do you have you know speech and speech therapy services, social work, occupational therapy. Um, you have so many different things going on, a physical therapy, and so oftentimes so many of the students in the general education population within special education come and go out of the classrooms pretty freely throughout the course of a school day. And so um, that wasn't always the model. As you know, we moved away you know, in the late 60s from this, you know, we did this deinstitutionalization and because so many of those kids that needed to be in the, you know, with their general education peers were sent away to special schools and right. they just really didn't have access to, to their peers, which we really felt like it's really essential to good social development. Um, just to, to good academic development, intellectual development. And so now, quite honestly, you step into any school system and you see kids coming and going from the classroom with a variety of different needs. So I think in a lot of ways it is more mainstream. I think it is more normal to see somebody come into the classroom, you know, pull a couple students here and there, and it's just more the expectation, I think. Right, and I think it helps with social development too. Oh, I think uh, definitely, because what you see is, Again, this goes back to what we talked about a little bit earlier. You hope that if you are able to get in a role similar to what I, I am in in the schools, that the kids see me as somebody that, you know, they would go to if they had a problem or that they see as valuable or they see as a trusted adult or they see as someone that they could have a relationship with. And so if you have that, I guess I don't know how else you say it, kind of a street cred with the kids, right. it, it does add value for those students that do need to come and work with me, you know, that, oh, I, gotta, I have to get this student now, and I can't tell you how many times I walk into a classroom, and are you going to take me, are you going to take me, are you going to take me, and it just becomes this fun kind of thing for the kids, and, it, and in a lot of ways it, it normalizes it. This is what we do. I mean, you know, a lot of kids come to a lot of different people within the school system, uh, and it it, it's a normal process. It's not something that that shares the same stigma that perhaps it used two years ago. Do you find that peer-to-peer uh, -peer acceptance issues can be affected sometimes with the attitudes of the parents of the classroom peers that they have with regard to the special needs kids, or do they the, do the kids have ideas of their own as far as acceptance goes? Well, I, I think oftentimes we all come to school or we come to work with our different preconceived notions on how you know on on how we see the world. And I think that sometimes there are students that do come to school with certain ideas and understandings of, uh, of, of how perhaps that, you know, that other student's ability plays out in the classroom or plays out at recess time. In fact, I just had a situation with a second grader not long ago that 
she was trying to navigate a situation within her classroom, and she had another student in her classroom who had a lot of, let's just say, a lot of family troubles, a lot of, a lot of difficulty going on. And in her attempts to try to fix that situation, she used what she had heard from her parents and didn't quite go down the way she had hoped. Uh-huh. She, she made a comment similar to, I know you have a lot of difficulties going on at home, and I know you've lived a hard life. Uh-oh. <laughs> that that didn't go over quite so well with the student that, that heard that. So I think, you know, I do think it impacts how our kids come to school. I think the student's intentions were right. I, I felt like she was trying to be empathetic to her friend, but right. sometimes we can feed our kids a little bit too much information that they're just not quite emotionally ready to handle and or deliver right. in, in a situation like that. Yeah, kids aren't ready to be parents just yet. Absolutely not. No, and but the other side of your question really you know, do kids, you know, are they ready to accept one another? And I think the answer is, yeah, I think innately kids are willing to meet their, you know, meet their peers where they're at. Oftentimes, I, you know, I look at kindergartners, first grade, second graders, you may have heard me say this from time to time that, you know, in a lot of ways, kids are bobbleheads. They just kind of see the world like, oh, okay, face value. All right, face value that, you know, I just kind of see you you're Johnny, you're Susie, you're Nathan, you're, it's just who you are, and I don't see you as anything outside of that. The thing that really gets in the way sometimes is, is when people like teachers and parents step in and they point out a situation as something that is outside the norm. And because kids in a lot of situations don't, don't know that this is something they should look away from or this is a situation or a student that is different than them in so many different ways. They're, I think, I think innately children see the world as, you know, on even footing with one another. Right. They're willing to see each other as equals, but sometimes we interject in there in our attempts to help, and it ends up complicating things for them. Sure. What could parents do, uh, for parents of special needs kids, that is, what could they do to help educators and even other parents understand more about their child and their relationship with their classmates? Well, I'm always a fan of parents who want to come into the classroom and discuss certain things because really, in most of those situations, the parents are the experts. I mean, you guys have lived with your child since birth. You're the ones that know the ins and outs. You're the ones that know what are some of the things that are successful with the student and sometimes not. I always like it, and I always encourage parents to come in before a school year, sit down with the teachers, explain the situation. Um, and, and quite honestly, the teachers want to have that information. They want to know what's going on with the particular student. They want to be able to help them. And I don't want to be on the five-yard line if I could start the school year on the 50-yard line. Exactly. And, and I don't want a student having to go, you know, work so much harder at something if we had already established something in the previous year that was successful or helpful. So I think in, in a lot of those situations, I'm, a, I'm an advocate of parents stepping up and going to the teachers and oftentimes, like I had said earlier, going into the classroom. Oftentimes we'll have students who are autistic or who have some specialized medical condition that results in a student behaving or acting perhaps differently in in one way or another. And so I think it's helpful when when I've been able to pair with the the parents to go into the classroom, and we sit down and we talk about different scenarios, and we talk about this is how 
Susie does this, or you may notice her doing this at times, and it's okay to ask her questions about this, or it's okay to help her with this, or to ask her if she needs help. I think a lot of that preparation, I think when you team up with a parent, it just makes for everything being a little bit more normalized in the classroom. And, it, and quite honestly, I think it sets everyone at ease. Right. Well, I was going to bring that up because one parent I know of whose child has a disability that makes communication really difficult, and she went to the child's class on a day when the kid wasn't in school and did a little talk about why her child was different and what the kids in the class should know about behavior. And so you recommend that kind of thing for other parents to do as well? I sure do. Yeah, I I think that's brilliant. I think that's, uh, you know, that's a really nice way of doing it that doesn't embarrass the child. You go in, you sit down, you talk with the teacher and with the kids, and you give the kids an opportunity to ask the questions that they have. I think sometimes what ends up happening is that in those situations, we overpredict the information that at times kids need or that or we overpredict where they're going with a certain question. And I think it's helpful in those times to allow kids to ask the questions that they have and to answer the question and not to go too, too deep into something because they might just want to know what Susie's favorite color is. They don't need to know all the background information about this or that. No, I just wanted to know what her color was. Right. And uh, I, I think sometimes we have a propensity as adults to provide too much information. But I do think, yeah, any time that a parent can go into the classroom and offer a little bit of information regarding how things are going, especially at those early ages when it's probably more critical, Mm-hmm. is is beneficial. Right. And so also you recommend for parents who haven't done this before, obviously, you know, set it up with a social worker at the school or the guidance counselor or whoever the school has and uh, kind of help because they'll help guide the parent through what they should say and what isn't really necessary. That's true. Yeah, absolutely. Because I think that sometimes, especially if a parent hasn't gone into a classroom and now you have a student that is a sixth grader, versus a first grader, that conversation is going to look much different. You need to be more keenly aware of the social impact of what a conversation like that could, how that could be interpreted. And so I think having someone with you to kind of walk through that process is always going to be helpful. Uh, Lots of progress has been made in recent years with addressing uh, issues of bullying and acceptance, but what about special needs children who really can't communicate effectively what's happening, or even sometimes they don't communicate at all? What are some of the methods you recommend for parents and educators to use when they're trying to find out if any kind of bullying is occurring and then how to deal with it? Well, in East Grand Rapids, we've had a pretty active bully curriculum for the last nine years. Uh, between Lakeside, Wealthy, and Breton. And one of the key components of that program is the job of the bystander. I think that a lot of programs, a lot of schools do a lot of different things with bullying, but really the crux of any of those programs to be effective is the job of the people who are witnessing what is occurring. Mm -hmm. And I think that we do a pretty intense job, a pretty good job, a pretty thorough job of explaining to the kids that the role of the bystander is essential in what we teach with this whole bully curriculum. And the kids oftentimes hear me say in the classroom, and it it may sound direct, but I often will say to them that if you see bullying happen, if you see someone being picked on, doing nothing is not an option you have. You have to do something about it. And I think instilling that in kids early on is essential to them really believing in that philosophy as they get older. I think too many times these programs fail because they don't have a strong enough bystander component. And 
you know, what comes with that, of course, is having good administrative support, good staff support, because staff and administrators have to be able to respond effectively to these kids when they come forward and say, hey, Johnny was being picked on on the playground. And you, you have to be able to be a captive audience for those kids because they have to believe that the system works. Right. If they go to adults and they go again and again and again, and they're not getting what they want, they're not getting the feedback that they've been told they're supposed to be getting, they're going to stop coming. And I think that in those times when you have a student who can't communicate for themselves as effectively, it's really incumbent upon everybody else who's around to do something about it. And in those moments, for instance, if a student had come to me about that, um, I would do my due diligence with that. I would investigate. I would find out things like who were the witnesses, who did you know, who was there, what happened, and you investigate. You talk to every one of those. Our administrator at Breton does a very thorough job with that in terms of being able to come forward and, okay, Susie was there, Johnny was there, Emma was there, Josie was there, okay. And then you pull all those students in. What did you see individually? Mm -hmm. Pull them all in individually, and then you try to build a picture of what happened in that moment. And then from there, you know, of course, and consequences are laid out depending on what information was gathered. Right, and I know most parents, of course, we all like to think our kids are perfect or at least <laughs> or at least well behaved but uh, what should a parent do when they're confronted with the fact that their child might be a bully or is causing problems for other children i think it's essential in those times to be able to have that open communication with your kid and, and like you had you know to, to have a realistic perspective that everyone makes mistakes that when you have that conversation with your child when you're doing your own investigation that you do it in a way that is as much devoid of emotion as possible, that you sit down, you have a conversation with your child, you talk about what has occurred, you ask them their perception of what had happened. Um, perhaps what you do is, if there are other, other witnesses, if you have a relationship with the other families, if you're able to have a dialogue about that, I think that's a good way for them to see how a good problem-solving model works, the fact that you are going to be responsible for your behavior, that we're not going to uh, exempt you from responsibility simply because you're our child. Students, I think, you know, children, I believe, really do need to understand that sense of responsibility at an early age. And not to say that the punishment needs to be harsh, but it does need to fit the crime, and it does need to be talked about. It's a perfect learning opportunity for a child to realize that not you know just because who you are just because you're from this family just because you might have means just because you might have this or that does not mean that you ever have permission to be unkind to another person mm -hmm. and i think as long as parents you know drive you know, drive with that message behind things they can have a successful resolution of that problem right and i want to go back to one point that you made in many of the schools the parents really do get to know each other fairly well or at least you know, on a on a talk about the weather type basis. Right. How do you recommend the parents speak to each other about issues like this if they do arise between their children? You know, I'm a fan. I, I learned this line a long time ago. Um, uh, I was wondering if you could help me understand something. And, and I think, you know, kind of having that non-confrontational approach with another parent, being able to say, you know, I've really got something that I'd like to talk about. It's uncomfortable, and I'm sorry, I don't need to make, make you uncomfortable, but... I know you would want me to talk to you about it, so here it is. And I'm wondering if you can help me with this. I'm wondering if you can help me understand how we can fix this problem. I think it's always essential to, to go after something like that. Once some of the emotions have calmed down a little bit, I don't think, I've never been a proponent of parents 
couching things like that. I think, I, I mean, I am a fan of, kid, of parents stepping forward and resolving it in the way that you would want your children to resolve it and, and being comfortable and understanding that it might be a little bit sticky at times and it might be a little bit awkward, but I think in the end the message that you send to the, the other parents within that community is that you're a parent that's going to advocate for your kid. You know, I, I like your son, you know, I like your daughter, I like your son. However, at the end of the day, my responsibility lies with my child, and I have to be able to stand up and advocate for them, despite the fact that it makes me feel uncomfortable. And, and I think being honest with what you feel before you start that difficult conversation with another parent is essential in setting the tone that, look, I'm not bringing this forward to be mean, but i got to kind of do this because, you know, this is, this is my daughter or this is my son. Right. And I think in some cases, too, an overreaction or, you know, just, uh, you know, just flying off the handle is not necessarily a great way to approach a problem either. No, because that just sets the tone that your goal is really to win. Your goal is not really to mediate this problem. Your goal is to perhaps overpower with anger or some other powerful emotion to help in some way manipulate the situation which is unfair from the beginning. Yeah, that's uh, that's great information about that. And I want to switch uh, to a different area now, going on to uh, communicating, you know, because many times, even if a special needs child has some difficulty communicating, they can still understand that they're, you know, different from other kids in the school. And in some cases, this can lead to anxiety or depression problems for the special needs child. What could the parents of special needs kids uh, do if they worry that this might be happening? Well, I think it goes back to at the beginning when we had our conversation about what are the resources in the building. I mean, is there a school counselor? Is there a social worker? Because those are the folks in the building that are the experts to help help you along that path. A lot of the times what I'll do is if, if there is some kind of suspicion regarding depression or anxiety, is there, there, are, there are many scales that we can do to do talk with parents or talk with teachers. We can have you guys fill out which focus more specifically on things like anxiety or depression to see, you know, the, maybe the student cannot voice it for themselves, but boy, all the caretakers in this child's life are really pointing to the presence of something like depression or an anxiety disorder. And I think that's a, you know, and I think other things that you can do certainly is elicit the support of those folks like the social workers, maybe even the school psychologist. I know that in our district they help with classroom observations to so just go in and kind of see where, where the student's functioning is, what were some of the previous behaviors before maybe the onset of some of the depressive or anxious symptoms had arisen, and, and see in comparison to where they were before. Chances are, if those students are in special education, that we've probably got a pretty substantial amount of information on them from previous assessments that we've done or previous evaluations. But I think it always it always has to start with with the personnel who know you know who know the child best. Of course, you talk to the teacher and see have you noticed any changes in the classroom? Because boy, at home we're starting to see more of this. Or you know the morning routines are just much more difficult. Or we're seeing these behaviors or those behaviors. You know the beauty of accessing a teacher is that especially at the elementary level, they have, they have access to that student, you know, six, seven hours a day. And, and I think that it's essential information that you could tap into during those, you know, during those times when you're 
questioning those types of symptoms. And, of course, one of the key factors of making sure that special needs kids are getting the help that they need in the school is to have a good rapport with the teachers and the social workers and guidance counselors and whoever else is uh, working with the kids. From your perspective, what are some of the difficulties that parents can sometimes cause without realizing it that could impact the relationship with parents uh, that need to have with their school staff? And uh, and then on the other side of that, obviously, also, uh, what about teachers, too, and uh, what they might do or not always do and how that can impact uh, things? Well, I, I think sometimes in in our zealousness, if that's a word, sure, <laughs> what we do is at times as parents we over-advocate for our kids. Right. And I think that there's the fear that, Unfortunately, when we have those IEP meetings or we have the three-year reevaluations, there's an unintentional pressure that comes with those. And I think people, I think parents justifiably put a lot of weight into those meetings thinking this is our one opportunity to get everything on the table that we want to right now. And sometimes with some parents, it creates a sense of panic and it creates a sense of anxiety. And then the message sent isn't necessarily a message received. Right. That sometimes parents, as we talked about a little bit earlier, you can come off really, really brash. You can come off really um, agitated in time. When you're not really agitated, you're just trying to get the information out there, but the delivery isn't exactly as smooth as you might like. And so I think in those times, uh, we, you know, the nice thing from the special education staff, at least the ones that I've worked with, is that we tend to have an understanding of those things. We tend to, we've seen a lot of different meetings. We've worked with a lot of different families. And quite honestly, it's a difficult situation for a family. I mean, you, you, when you have parents that are struggling with a child that already has difficulties, and then we put them in this meeting once a year to go over everything that's going on, it's, you really do feel like it's a weighted meeting and that you really do need to get everything out and, um, and in your you know, in your zealousness to advocate for your child, sometimes it, it comes off not in the way that maybe you had intended. And so I'm, I'm a fan in those times, like especially if you have a child that has more involved needs, to, to do things like pre-meetings or do check-ins throughout the year so that you don't feel that intense pressure when you have the IEP meeting. And, and if it is possible before the IEP meetings to go over, well, what are you guys thinking about from a school standpoint regarding goals? What are you thinking about regarding objectives? Can we sit and chat? This is kind of where we're going on this. And, and I think the other piece, too, is understanding that the school has its objectives regarding the academic environment. And, and, and parents often in situations want to get the most out of the school system. And I think in those times we have to be a little bit careful with one another to say, okay, well, this is what we can provide. Yes, this is what you want, but this is what we can provide with the manpower that we have. And, and of course, as you know, budget cuts and everything else have happened to the school system, at least here in Michigan, and it's reduced a lot of the manpower. And, it's, and, and we really have been burning the midnight oil for the last three or four years here trying to provide a good quality product with much less manpower than we used to have. Sure. And so and I think that's, that's another piece. Yeah, and a lot of people don't realize that, of course, the budget cuts, no, they may not necessarily affect uh, special education per se, but they affect a lot of the support staff, which helps to uh, create that situation. Exactly. And, and, I mean, whether it's, I mean, my time has been reduced as a social worker, our 
uh, psychology services have been reduced, our occupational therapy services have been reduced, the special ed teachers have been shifted around based on numbers. It's really, it, it's really diminished a lot of the accessibility that I have personally to the teachers, being that now I'm in between two different buildings trying to do the same job and trying to do it to my standards, right. and, and that's the part that becomes difficult. Now, the other, the other side of your question was, what is it that teachers can do a little bit differently? I think, I think it's sharing a similar model, that knowing that it's got to be difficult. I mean, from, from a staff standpoint, uh, to, have, to have a child that struggles and to know that I'm their best chance to get them everything that they need as a parent and to realize that when parents do come in, it's an emotional time. And it's, it's a difficult thing to try to play hardball or to assume that you have to play hardball with the school district. Um, and I think it's important for teachers to understand that, that, you know, it's not a, it's not a war. It's not an us versus a them. It's we're trying to come to a good, reasonable plan for this student for the next year within the resources that we have. Right. And you, you have to kind of a uh... Both sides need to, you know, have more realistic expectations. But also, I think sometimes the relationship doesn't need to be quite as adversarial as some people might think. And it's because we're really we're all in this together. We're all trying to do the best we can for the kids. And that's exactly right. I think any of us that have been in a situation that maybe has turned adversarial realizes that we never wanted to get here. I mean, our point was to make this as amicable for everybody because it affects everybody. My job gets easier. I'll put it on the table right now when I like you. <laughs> Your job is easier when you like me. Right. And, I mean, it, it just makes communication much easier, and you can just sit down and have a real conversation with, with the parents or, or with the staff members of the school. And I think that, you know, that's a piece that you hope that everybody strives to get to. But I think, like we've talked about here, we've intimated that, you know, the assumption is that everyone comes in with a different agenda and a different angle with this when, in fact, you know, personally, my goal is to, you know, is to really formulate a plan that works for everybody, that makes you feel good, that makes, you know, the staff feel like that's a doable, that's a doable plan that we can accomplish within the school day. I think it, it really is about making sure that we keep the child at the center of our planning when we try to craft any kind of a plan. And that's great. That's really great because I think it helps with the communication and keeping the dialogue going. And um, I think it just overall, it helps anything to improve the atmosphere. <laughs> well, and that's it. And I think, you know, unfortunately, you do get certain, you know, on both sides of the table. I mean, you, you, can, you can get certain assumptions that, well, I'd like to have regular communication, for instance. Well, you've got the teacher hearing that going, what is regular communication? Right, yeah. uh, is that every day you need to have a report? It, it, <laughs> and, and it all depends on, you know, I mean, when you're advocating for your child, you're thinking, no, this is reasonable for me. And the teacher is looking at that going, uh-huh, but I have 27 kids that, right, or more. <laughs> or more that all want the same thing. And, and so, I mean, I, I think it's about being reasonable. And, and really, when you're having those meetings, put that stuff on the table. Right. And that's easy to work with. That, I mean, when you know what people want and you trust what they want and you behave in ways that show your integrity, people will do a lot for you. And I think that that, you know, whatever you can do to help establish that with the folks that you have to work with is essential to ultimately getting what you want. 
Right. And, and like you say, you know, it comes down to realistic expectations on both sides. You know, I don't expect a daily phone call or a daily email or even an hourly. You know, right. that goes a little too far. You know, teachers have, have lives outside of the school as well. And, uh, you know, they have their own families and their own things going on. And so, you know, remember that uh, the workday is so many hours. And then outside of those hours, it's this becomes, you know, what's the priority then after that? Well, and, th- and that, that was quite honestly one of the hard adjustments for me coming into a school setting when I had always been in a, like, mental health background. I, for instance, I worked at a, I was a therapist on the children's team for several years, wow. worked in a lot of different places, worked at the hospital setting, and being in places where people came primarily to me for my service is different than me now working in a host environment. And, right. and working with teachers who are giving away their cell phone numbers and doing this and having phone calls till 11, 12 o'clock at night was, was quite an adjustment for me <laughs> because I thought, you've got to take care of yourself. You right. can't be available until 11 o'clock at night. Yeah, when do they sleep? Exactly, and that, it's, it, it's very difficult, especially for younger teachers, to establish those boundaries, and, um, and the rest of us aren't going to help them with that, quite honestly. Right, yeah. So, it, yeah, it, that, that's kind of a sticky wicket, too. Yeah, well, we've always kind of thought in the back of our minds when teachers say things like that because there's always the very first day of school meeting with all the parents and stuff like that and some teachers you know i so admire them because they do that they give out their cell phone numbers they call me any time of the day or night and i always uh, we always sarah and i always look at each other because her dad was a teacher too and we both <laughs> say you know that's nice but we're going to try not to do that right right and <laughs> we're we going to try that. not to call them <laughs> <laughs> yeah we so, appreciate that <clears throat> yes no problem um then Finally, I think, you know, there are probably hundreds and hundreds of books out there that are devoted to parenting techniques for regular families with regular children, and I, I think I probably have at least half of them. Uh, but most of the experts on child behavior say very little about the challenges for special needs kids. Are there any books or websites that you could recommend for parents who have special needs children that might actually help with better than just, you know, uh, you know, my kid gets straight A's because I do this? Type well, thing. yeah, and I and I hope your listeners aren't offended by this title, but a book came out back in 2010, which I I, I got I got my hands on, and and I've looked at here and there, and I've referenced it to other parents from time to time, but uh, the title of it is "Shut Up About Your Perfect Kid." I've seen that. That is a great book. <laughs> That's a, I I love that book. I love I, that title. As a parent I, of a special needs child, you betcha. <laughs> absolutely. I mean, because I mean, let's be honest. I mean, that's. That's the crux of it right there. And, and let's be honest, the perfect kids don't exist. Right. I, I know there's the illusion that they exist, but they really don't. But, but the truth of it is, I think that that book just encapsulates a lot of the frustration that, that folks who have special needs children deal with on a day-to-day basis. Mm-hmm. You try so hard to achieve this sense of what normal is, and it, it, you're frustrated at every end because you have this group of parents out there who kind of cast these furtive glances over their shoulders are not really going to, oh, I'm glad I don't have to deal with that, glad I don't have to deal with that. But at the end of the day, nobody's perfect. Nobody has that perfect family. And I think that what I love about this book is that it's a very practical guide. It's very pragmatic. It's very much real life. It's very much, I think for families who are struggling it, you know, it, it's a nice, almost kind of a Bible to sit and just see that I'm not the only one. Right. I'm, I'm not, you know, oh, gosh, that's happened to me, or that's happened to me. It makes you 
feel the way that you should feel, that you're normal, and that this is a this is a divergent situation that you're having to hurdle over. You're trying to accommodate to the society that that assumes that the world should look this way, and 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 we have these great thinkers and our special needs kids who just sometimes see the world in a different, more creative, wonderful way that society at large sometimes isn't quite ready to see. Right. And I and that's what I love about that particular book. Um, I, I think you know another a new book that came out which I've recently ordered is uh, the Special Needs Parent Handbook. Mm. Um, it, that one came out in 2012, and there's actually a website with that. It's it's called DrivenStory.com, ah. and it is this dad's just constant pursuit to advocate for his daughter, and and from it he's written a book that has his own stories and his own anecdotal situations that have happened that he really puts into a nice format for parents to read. So I think that's, a, that's another one. There's actually even a, a clip on the website about him trying to get access to The Daily Show, the John Stewart Daily oh, Show. So, I mean, I, I just love it. I love it when parents like that stand up and do what they need to do to get, the, to get what they need for their children. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, certainly some of the old standby, one of the old standbys that I use is the book that views from our shoes. Oh. I, I don't know if you've ever seen that one. That one's no, written... It's basically written, there's all these wonderful stories that siblings have written about their, about their siblings who have special needs, or it might be written from other family members, but they're very sweet, usually a page, maybe a page and a half, two-page stories that talk about the uniqueness of their brother or their sister or their friend. And I, I find it just very sweet to have a book like that, and it just normalizes it. That's a great book, for instance, to do some class project work about. You know, different students can read different sections in there that might relate to their own lives. And, and, and you know, quite honestly, that's another good lesson that I've done in the classroom is when we've gone in and we've talked about different students, we talk about our own personal stories. And who do you know who is like this or like that? Mm-hmm. And, and I think it's a neat thing. It's a neat way for them to, again, find a new way, another way to, to normalize this sometimes complicated way of seeing the world for some other folks. Right. Well, anything like that is bound to help because I think the hardest thing uh, for any parent after you get the diagnosis is, oh, my gosh, this is only happening to me. You know, Mm -hmm. am I the only one, you know, that this is going on with? It's all unique and it's all different. And then you eventually you come to find out, oh, there's a lot of other people with the same problem. And I just didn't realize it. Well, and quite honestly, we are coming at it at a time that, it, I mean, there's really no excuse to not find your own support group right now. I right. mean, with the Internet and with the access to, to just to all these different pages, I mean, there, there's, a, there's an app for that. <laughs> there is a website that, that has this condition. There is a support group in your neighborhood. That oh, yeah. is, and, and I think that, you know, I, I've been so impressed by some of the parents over the years with their tenacity to find those resources for themselves, even far, far above anything that I could have done for them. I, I think it's just when you, have, when you have that personal connection to it, um, you can become incredibly resourceful. It's a lot better now than it used to be when, like we say, the kids were either institutionalized off campus or if they were in the school, they were kept in a separate classroom all by themselves. You know, and I, I'm just so much more impressed with the way uh, special education is handled these days. Well, and, I, and I'm impressed with, you know, the administrators that I've worked with, how much they fight for their kids. And, and I feel like 
you know, we've had some difficult times in our school system with some very, very challenging behavior. And, you know, the fortitude of some of these principals to, in these very tense meetings with parents, fight for those kids to stay in their building. We do not want this student A or student B leaving our building. I'm so very impressed and inspired by that when I hear those things because I could see a lot of school districts saying, you know what, you know, that, that's a lot of stress, so if you want to go, go. Right. But more and more school systems are realizing that, you know, we have the resources to manage this. We have talented, fantastic staff that, you know, we just need to formulate a plan together. We, you know, we can overcome anything. Mm-hmm. That's and, I, and I feel like special education really has shifted just in the time that I've been in East Grand Rapids for 13 years, that we have shifted much more to that inclusion model and, and, get, and getting, getting students access to their same age peers so that they can see those role models. And so they can, you know, I have a, you know, a big frustration with districts who really feel like the best model is to put them into a secluded classroom. I really feel like they need to be given the opportunity to be like other students. And how are they going to be like other students if you seclude them from the other students? Exactly. And it's all social behaviors, of course, are a learned thing. You know, uh, you're not born with the ability to talk <laughs> to different people all the time. You hope you are. But a lot of it is, you know, you learn from your parents and you learn from a school situation. And if the child doesn't have a social setting uh to learn from, then they're never going to really be able to overcome their challenges. That's exactly right. They need to be able to be given access to the curriculum, to the, to the, to the students, to be in those social settings, to eat lunch with them, to, to be the child, you know, be the twelve-year-old that they are. Mm-hmm. I know I was at a, a pretty intensive autism training a couple years back, and there was a presenter who was talking about this case that she had where they had a teacher that did not want to continue to try to teach that student how to read, and the teacher was just adamant, like, how do you know that he's ever going to be able to read? We've been sitting in front of this curriculum for 10 years, and he hasn't been able to read. And her response was, how do you know he won't? Right. The fact is, we don't know. We have to assume competence. We have to assume that they're going to be able to get it, because why would we do anything? Why would we teach if we did not assume that a child had the capacity to gain from it? Yeah, well, one of the things uh, my wife Sarah always says is a lot of these kids, they can comprehend a lot more than we probably realize, but they're unfortunately trapped in bodies that won't cooperate. And that's it. I mean, in the epitome of something like autism, that's really one of the hallmarks. And that's something that even... Within a school system, we have to be keenly aware when we're having conversations regarding a student that, you know, at times I'm sure people fall into the assumption that this student doesn't understand what I'm saying, so I can just have this kind of a conversation. No, you can't Mm -hmm. because you don't know what the level of comprehension is and you don't know what they're gaining. None of us have autism. We don't know what that experience feels like. We just have to assume that this information would be distressing to a student with autism to hear, so we're not going to have that conversation right now right? until we can be sure that it's a private conversation. So just, you know, everything within the school system has shifted in that way. I feel like staff are just much more aware of those kinds of issues and much more respectful. Right, and then going back to that teacher you just mentioned, of course, the other question could be, well, how do you know the child can't read? That's right. If the child can't communicate, how do you know they're not learning it? 
Exactly, exactly. So, yeah, you really, you don't. And, and that's the thing is you have to put students in front of the curriculum. You have to continue to have hope. You have to continue to think that the next breakthrough is in the next 10 minutes. Right. Well, thank you so much. I mean, this has been really enlightening, and I think uh, hopefully that uh, a lot of people will be able to hear this and uh, get some good information. And I think it goes back to what we said, you know, which is we're all in this together, the teachers, the parents, the social workers. And I think more communication is better than none, but, of course, uh, try to temper the communication in a realistic area so that you're not calling or emailing at 3 in the morning. (laughs) I agree because I you won't get me responding at three in the morning. But yeah. <laughs> I think that, that that's essentially it. It's just understanding that we all have a desire to help the student to have information sent back and forth to be on your team. We we don't want it our team and your team. We want to be together with this path and, and just having those reasonable expectations. I'd like to thank our guest for this episode, Chris Kenward, for taking the time to talk to us. And as we mentioned, we will have links to all the resources he talked about in the interview on the Special Parents Confidential website. And that's it for this episode of Special Parents Confidential. I'm John Pellegrini. Thanks for listening.